Amen. And can we give my brother John a wonderful round of applause? One thing about uh, since I've met John is that I've never seen this that man sad. He's always happy, smiling, and so I'm so thankful for you, John, for uh, you doing that for us every Tuesday night, doing announcements. Hey, one last announcement that I forgot to mention, or we forgot to mention, is the Focal Point Radio Ministries Benefit Dinner is coming up. How many of you have, been a, have had an opportunity to attend one of those? This is the 10th annual uh, Radio Ministries Benefit Dinner for Focal Point Ministries. That's coming up April the 29th, just so you guys know, at 6 p.m. here in our campus. Um, it's going to be a great time to be exposed, obviously, to the ministry of Focal Point Radio Ministries, which is based on the preaching ministry of our pastor, Pastor Mike Fabaris. And uh, the speaker this year, how many of you were paying attention Sunday morning or Saturday night? Who is the speaker th this time around? Todd Friel. How many of you listen to Todd Friel or know about Todd Friel? Wow, shocking. Wretched Radio. You need to listen to that guy. He's a great apologist, great defender of the faith, uh, just a faithful man of God. And the theme this year is now more than ever for that particular benefit dinner. And uh, obviously, um, that's just uh, the spirit of that title is just communicating the fact that we need to use now more than ever every means of proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so make sure that you sign up for that. I know that there's discounted tickets right now if you register sooner than later. And the second piece to that is, is that if you would consider making a donation toward the silent auction, that would be greatly appreciated. You could do that as an individual, or you could do that as, within men's ministry as a small group. Maybe you guys as, small group, as a small group can sort of talk about how to uh, make a donation toward the, the silent auction that's going to be taking place all in the name of supporting the uh, Focal Point Radio Ministry. And uh, if you're interested in that, you need to speak to Greg Peterson or Jay Wharton, or just let the Focal Point Radio Ministry's office know that you want to do that. Donations need to be in. The deadline is April the 1st. If you want to do that as an individual or as a small group, make sure that you do that before April the 1st, okay? And uh, make sure that you take that opportunity to support that wonderful ministry of our pastor and of our church. And uh, there's so much happening, uh, not only here in, in South OC through that radio ministry, but in other states in our country. And then even missionaries have been exposed to Pastor Mike through that radio ministry in other countries. So uh, make sure that you take advantage of that, okay? All right. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're back in the Gospel of John. And yes, we are going to cover all of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, okay? I know. It's going to be a, an act of bravery. Let's go. That's right. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, one of the privileges we had this past week, as many of you know, is to attend the annual Shepherds Conference in L.A. How many of you have attended that conference in the past? Anybody gone to the Shepherds Conference? Yeah, a few of you. Great conference. Great food. It's, it's almost like the Disneyland for pastors, okay? Seriously, they have a candy place and, you know, an uh, ice cream place where pastors can enjoy that, and you can even get your shoes shined and your hair cut and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, that's not so much for the American pastors. It's really to pamper the pastors who are coming from third world countries and other places where they're very isolated, and so they really want to care for the pastors. And so it's a great conference, great preaching and teaching, both the main sessions as well as the breakout sessions. And, you know, one of the privileges that you get is obviously to catch up with longtime friends, um, leaders, lay leaders, and uh, vocational pastors there, as well as 
uh, just to hear, uh, meet new brothers and just to hear their, their gospel testimonies. And so over the years, that's been one of my favorite things, to just meet some of these other pastors who come in, maybe for the first time, and just reach out to them and care for them and hear what's going on in life and ministry. And then to hear how God rescued them from sin, how God saved them from their sins. It's a wonderful time. Well, one of the most powerful gospel stories I've ever heard came from a brother who was born blind from birth. It was an amazing testimony about eight years ago. He was a, a man who had never seen the light of day, never enjoyed the beauty of a sunset. He'd never beheld the face of at least one of his two precious baby and newborn babies. They had a couple of kids at the time. Or he had never seen the, the face of his own wife. Think about that. And yet, this man was one of the most joyful men that I ever met. The Lord had, had, he had met Jesus at one point in his life. And though he could uh, physic, he couldn't physically see. He and and all of the of the uh, he he was so such a grateful individual for everything that God had done in his life. So it's a thankful, thankful man of God. He was grateful for the spiritual sight that the Lord had granted him, even if physically he he knew that he could never physically see. So so grateful. I've never forgotten that particular gospel story. And as you, if you studied John chapter 9, then you know that in our passage today, we're going to look at an account of such a man. Such a man also born blind, but in the case of this particular man, he not only miraculously received physical sight, he also received spiritual sight, didn't he? Now, a lot has, has happened, you need to know, before John chapter 9, okay? In fact, all of Luke chapters 10 through 12 have taken place before this particular account here. And I'll let you on your own survey Luke chapters 10 through 12. But it's now the Feast of Dedication. If you look at chapter 10, verse 22 of John, it's winter time. Jesus is only a few months from going to the cross of Calvary to die for sins. And things continue to escalate with the religious leaders. And this miracle that takes place here with, this, with the healing of this blind man escalates things even further for Jesus. Here's this man born blind from birth, and Jesus is going to heal him, and things are going to become even more hostile with the religious leaders. Now, if you know something about blindness during New Testament times in particular, during the times of Jesus, blindness, like many sicknesses in Jesus's day, were very common. And because of, of, of a few medical resources, these people had little to no hope of help, people who were born blind or who were going blind. But this man's physical blindness here and what happens here has greater significance. Mark it, brothers, this miracle becomes a picture, a graphic illustration of salvation, of salvation. Here we see that Jesus, the light of the world, is not only able to give physical sight to this man, but more importantly, gives him spiritual sight. This man comes to know Jesus as the true Messiah, Jesus as the Savior from his sins. And so let's look at this together. If you're taking notes, I want to exhort us, don't miss, first and foremost, the majesty of Christ yet once again here. Don't miss the majesty of Christ in this particular passage. Always remember that the main point in every single gospel narrative, every single thing that happens, the main point in our narratives is the Lord Jesus. 
And as I've told you before, our tendency is to grow way too familiar and way, way too accustomed to the works of Jesus. It becomes so common for us to see him doing such amazing things and not to respond to those things that we read about and we study about Jesus with a great sense of amazement by all that he does. But again, if there's a, there's a function that Jesus' miracles should have, Jesus' words and works, if there's a function that those things should have is that they should evoke worship and adoration and amazement in us as we're confronted with his majesty. And as he does, he interacts with people such as this blind man. So now we have here another narrative. Here's this, this poor, destitute outcast, this blind man. He's a reject in that day. He's a type of a man who sits around basically all day long imagining what everything looks like, begging for help from any who will pay attention to him. He is often ignored. Most people who would come, or come around this man would ignore him. I've seen this type of a thing, by the way, in third world countries. Maybe you visited third world countries where there are people in these common places like marketplaces or city centers, and they're sitting around with some kind of an illness, or maybe they're half blind or completely blind, and they're sitting around even in those places, and, and it's like they are invisible to other people. We've taken donors, American donors, to feature ministries, ministries in, in foreign countries, um, non evangelical nonprofit organizations and churches. And we've taken them to these towns to show them around in the poverty that was there. And these people would sit around, these poverty-stricken people or, or even blind people would sit around and they would be like invisible human beings. Everybody would, would ignore them. Well, similarly, that's what would happen in Jesus' day. These people were poor, destitute. They, people would ignore such a man. But Jesus, mark it, takes note of this particular man. Jesus is never too busy to take note of individuals like these. The, the blind man might have not been able to see Jesus, but Jesus sees him, doesn't he? Now, by contrast, the disciples, at least for now, have this opposite response from that of Jesus. Rather than having compassion for this man, at least at first glance, they're thinking critically and, and self-righteously, aren't they? Look at verse 2. And his disciples asked Jesus, verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's this all about that they're asking Jesus? Well, the common belief of the day was that suffering of this nature was due to either your own sin, something that you did wrong, against God, and thus God was judging you, or it was due to the sin of your parents. Maybe your parents did something wrong. This was kind of the mentality of the, maybe the view of Job's friends, remember, who insinuated that Job had done something wrong somewhere in his life, somewhere along the way, to somehow deserve what had happened to him. And of course, God straightens those guys out, doesn't he? Now, think about this. In an ultimate sense, we might say that all suffering in, in an ultimate sense, yes, is the result of the fall. The result of living in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. And, and in an ultimate sense, all suffering, all pain, all evil is the result and consequence of living in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. But in a different sense, not all suffering that you experience in your life or somebody else does is the direct result of something that you've done wrong, some personal sin in your life or someone else's life. But in the popular Jewish theology of, of the day, 
their belief system taught them that suffering was due to someone's direct sin. And so this is the mentality of Jesus' disciples as they come asking him about this particular blind man. Who sinned, him or his parents? What does Jesus think about this? Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, it's not per your theological system that this man nor his parents sinned in a personal way, thus bringing physical blindness to himself. It's not that. No, there is a greater ultimate purpose, and that purpose is the glory of God. And they're about to witness this. As Jesus heals this man, it's so that so that God might be glorified through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who comes having been catapulted from heaven in fulfillment of God's purposes. He is about to heal this man, and God will be made much of here. Someone might object, saying, well, that's kind of mean, that God allows such a thing in someone's life just to, just to glorify himself. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair. I've heard that many times. As I've witnessed to people, that's the normal response of the natural man, isn't it? Or the natural person. The person who is not thinking spiritually. Who's thinking about things through a humanistic perspective. This is not fair. It doesn't seem right for things to happen for, in an ultimate sense for the glory of God. But we need to consider that in a different sense, we should remember that any, any good health any prosperity, any blessing that we receive from God is a gift of God, isn't it? What do we deserve? Hell and condemnation. We don't often think about things from that perspective, do we? That what we deserve as sinners, as those who have committed mutiny against a holy and righteous God, is actually hell and condemnation. So anything that God gives us, anything that we have, even the pagan who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not following after Christ, who doesn't acknowledge the one true God of the Bible, any goodness that they have experienced is ultimately grace. It's grace. It's unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness from God. God is gracious to wicked and rebel people. See, we don't often think about things from God's perspective. We tend to view things only from our perspective as, as creatures, not from the perspective of God as creator and from the perspective of his eternal purposes at all. And so what Jesus is saying here is that everything is for the ultimate supreme purpose of, of glorifying God. In fact, as long as he's still with them, that is his purpose. Look at verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, he says. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is using metaphorical language here. In other words, he's saying the time is short, time is quickly fleeting, he's going to the cross himself. And what he's saying is while there is still time, we need to be working. This is why I've come. He is the light of the world who's come into the world to a, a much needed place full of wickedness and lacking hope, and he is the light of the world who's come to minister to people who are lost. But notice also what he says in verse 5, right? Or in verse 4. He says that we must work. We must work. Not only is he working, but his disciples who, are, who call themselves followers of his must also be about the kingdom work as well. 
You know, as a side note, brothers, that by way of implication applies to us. That applies to us if we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That if we are followers of Jesus, while God has you on this earth, you are to be about the work of the kingdom of God. You are to be using your resources. You are to be using your energy. You are to be using your time, everything for the purpose of serving God. That is what it means to, to work the, words, the works of God as a follower of Jesus, to serve him unreservedly, to serve him unabashedly, to be about kingdom work. Now here's Jesus' work that glorifies God. Notice in verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. <laughs> At the end of verse 7. So he went and washed and came back seen. Just like that. Just like that, a blind man born that way from birth, who's never seen the light of day, he basically goes and does what Jesus says, and he comes back seen, just like that, so unembellished, right? So unembellished. That's how powerful Jesus is. Have you noticed that every single miracle of Jesus is instantaneous? Have you noticed that every single miracle is, is immediate? In the sense that as soon as, as soon as the person does what Jesus has called them to do, there is complete and total and full and immediate and instantaneous healing from the all-powerful Christ. Amazing, amazing, definitive is the power of Jesus. Also, interesting process, isn't it? Interesting process that he has the man undergo. A couple of years, I, I taught through, years ago, I thought, taught through uh, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus heals a deaf man, and it says that he did it by putting his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he, spitting, touching his tongue. And I remember thinking to myself, that's kind of an odd way to heal somebody, right? You had the same thought? Be honest, okay, I'm not the only sinner around here, right? <laughs> kind of an odd way for the Lord to heal somebody. That's interesting. Why all that? Why, why in that particular manner did Jesus do such things? Similarly here, he, he forms mud, applies it, and instructs the man to, to go and wash it off. Why this process? Why this manner of healing this man? And here's my profound theological answer. Ready? Not a clue. Not a clue. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us why specifically, but I will say this to you, that as you study the life of our Lord, there is something about the personal touch and intimate involvement of our Lord Jesus. Jesus always seems to work in a very personal way in his ministry to people, even in the way that he heals. Amen? That's something that we cherish about our Lord. I mean, he could heal people however he wishes. This is the same Jesus who basically calms storms, walks on water, right? Performs these mighty miracles, calms winds, casts out powerful demons. He's unrivaled in power. He is unlimited as far as his authority goes. He can heal however he wants. He can zap people from a distance, from far away if he wanted to do it that way. Certainly. 
But his actions when healing brothers like this always show personal touch and personal involvement. And I think that is tremendously significant. As we see Jesus working to heal in this manner of healing. Also, I think a further significance is that Jesus sends this man to the pool of Siloam. And maybe you remember this particular pool from the end of John chapter 7. Literally, it meant, as the text tells us, it meant sent. And it was named sent because the water was sent into this pool from a spring called Gehon, which was outside the walls of Jerusalem. There would have been an underground tunnel through which the water would have flowed into the city of Jerusalem. And then the water would accumulate into what was known as the pool of Siloam inside of the city. And the significance of this pool, as we've seen before, was that it was a a symbol of God's great provision for his people. And so as Jesus is is saying to this man, go wash your, your eyes in the pool of Siloam, it was significant in that Christ was now pointing to himself as the one who could provide for this man healing. He was the provider of healing water for this man. And there's something more, prophetically speaking, that if you read... Old Testament prophecies, including a prophecy like, for example, Isaiah 42, verse 7. There it says in Isaiah 42, verse 7, that upon the arrival of the Messiah, amongst other things, blindness would be healed by the Messiah. Amazing. That sight would be restored. And that that would be part of the work of the coming Messiah. That, that prophecy in Isaiah 42 is some 700 years before G- this particular passage that Jesus, where Jesus is walking in Palestine. Amazing. And listen, Jesus' healing of this blind man also proves then again his identity as the long-awaited Messiah of God. That's amazing. And don't miss this also. Here's this this outcast, a helpless man who's unable to see Jesus, right? But Jesus takes note of him. Jesus displays his his authority over sickness again. Jesus displays his, his power, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his wisdom, his care, and his love for this man. Don't miss that, brothers. Don't miss the attributes of the Son of God who shares the same attributes as God the Father and the Spirit of God, don't miss the majesty of Jesus as seen in his glorious attributes, even in the way that he touches people's lives in the Gospels. Don't miss him. Don't miss the majestic Christ that you might see him and that you might savor him and worship him and adore him all the more. It's so important for us as men especially. You've heard the stories, right, of many men who you knew before, who maybe in their head had the right understanding, who had all the facts, had all the knowledge. We're going to see that even in the religious leaders in our second point coming up. They had all of the head knowledge, but they had no heart. No affections were moved by the truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be that man. You ought to be praying that God would not only allow you to be informed in your thinking but that you also would be moved in your affections, in your heart for Christ, so that when you flesh out application of the truth of the Word of God, it's sustainable, long-term kind of change, because your affections have been moved. There are things that you hate now concerning your sin, and you love Jesus, the majestic Christ that we're beholding in the Gospel of John. Amen? So make sure that you don't miss the majesty of Jesus. Second, 
As much as you should be amazed at the majesty of Christ, second, be astounded by the hideousness of unbelief. Be astounded by the hideousness, by the ugliness of unbelief. Though Jesus has performed these, this, these amazing miracles, and this particular miracle, I want you to notice that what you have in verses 8 all the way through, through verse 34 is this big chunk of verses filled with ugly unbelief. First of all, by most of his acquaintances, this man's acquaintances who begin to interrogate him in verses 8 through 12, but also by the religious elite in verses 13 through 34. Notice, first of all, his acquaintances are unbelieving as they're interrogating him in verses 8 through 12. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, verse 9, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So folks are trying to come to grips by all of this. Some are convinced by him and what's taking place. Others are, are doubtful that he's the same guy. But I love the end of verse 9, right? He pretty much clearly says, I am the man. You don't need to debate the matter. He tells him straight up, I am the man. I am the guy who's been healed. Even so, they begin the interrogation in verse 10. So they said to him, verse 10, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, verse 12, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They're trying to figure out what just happened here. And all he does is pretty just straightforwardly, he's just presenting the facts. He's just being clear with the, with the truth, even naming the one who has helped him. But of course, they're confused and they're perplexed, these acquaintances. Second, notice the religious elite. The religious elite, verses 13 through 34, contain three separate interrogations by these religious leaders that show this terrifying unbelief on the part of those who should have known better, at least from a human perspective the religious elite. There's the first and initial interrogation of the blind man. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. The they there are the neighbors in verse 8, those who knew this man to some extent or another, or at least knew of him. These, these people bring him to the Pharisees, maybe in order to get some type of explanation from the people, the religious leaders who, who should have known, perhaps, the nature of such things. What is it that just happened to this man? Maybe they can explain this, but most likely, they bring him to the religious leaders because Jesus had broken the Sabbath yet again. Do you remember how big of an issue that's been in the Gospel of John? Every time it seems that Jesus breaks the Sabbath, right? Or in any way from their perspective, challenges Sabbath observance, they are after him. John tells us in verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. He comments this because they were so rigid about the Sabbath. I mean, you weren't even allowed, according to their own interpretation of the Sabbath, their own tradition to help somebody. Because from their perspective, this was work. This was against their rabbinical law. Over and over again, they're after Jesus because of this. But back in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, do you remember what Jesus said about himself? He said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, he wrote the thing. 
He is the one who, who, who gave the terms and the conditions of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But you see, what the religious leaders are after is a witch hunt. They're after a witch hunt. Look at verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see pretty clear, right? Some of the Pharisees, verse 16 said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, the man answers, he is a prophet. Notice they keep interrogating him. They keep questioning him. And he just keeps stating the simple facts. Like back in verse 11, just stating the straightforward, simple, irrefutable acts of Jesus and what exactly happened. So much so that according to verse 16, it says that there was a division amongst them. A division amongst them. So they initially questioned him, but now they question his, his parents in a second interrogation. In verses 18 through 23. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Verse 19, and asked him, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he see? Now the parents are called to the witness stand. And I love how John gives a subtle commentary, right? He puts it, how he puts it, they call the parents of the man who had received his sight. There's John's silent witness right there, right? It's like John is saying, this man, hello, he truly was blind before and he has received sight. John does that throughout the gospel of John, gives this silent witness. But they ask a simple twofold question of the parents. Verse 19, is this your son? One, easy answer, right? Of course. Two, how is it that he now sees? What do they answer? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Boy, the first part of their answer was good and straightforward, right? He's our son. But the second part of the answer was pretty wishy-washy, wasn't it? Pretty wishy-washy. It's a cowardly answer. And verse 22 tells us why they responded this way. His parents, verse 22, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They're afraid. They're fearful people. It was a huge deal to be thrown out of the synagogue. It was a shameful thing. They were, they were going to be ostracized if they were kicked out of the synagogue. A terrible thing for a Jew to undergo this. But the truth is the truth. And yet his parents are man-fears. They're more intimidated, intimidated and concerned with, by what the religious leaders are think of them and what they're going to do than standing up for what is true concerning their son. They're more concerned what these hypocrites are going to do and say than standing up for what they know is true that has happened to their son miraculously. I mean, they of all people have known about his condition. And now all of a sudden, they, instead of being joyful and glorying in all of this, perhaps they were, the text doesn't tell us, what are they doing? They're fearing punishment and consequence. You know, genuine faith is a stark opposite, isn't it? It's the opposite of this. When you're a true follower of Christ, 
Even though you're going to have your low moments, and we've all had our low moments of perhaps being ashamed of Christ, whether in with neighbors or whether in your workplace or whatever, in whatever form that's taken, we've all had our moments. But ultimately, genuine followers of Christ will not be ashamed of Jesus. We will make a stand for him. And do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 38? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of him when I return with my holy angels, right? We should not be ashamed of Christ. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16 instructs us to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the call of the believer. That's an exhortation to us as Christian men, that we should never be like this and not stand up for the truth. You know, I was at the Shepherds Conference, as I mentioned to you. You know, one of my highlights was to interact with, with Russian and Ukrainian brothers. Many Russian brothers and their families who are actually against what is taking place in that part of the world, who are not supportive of the Russian government because they are believers and their allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost. But it was amazing to hear from these Russian brethren with even family members who are still in some of these places in Europe going through some of these atrocities. It was amazing to hear of their boldness for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of something that is so painful to them. Wow. Wow. Maybe some of us, to some extent or another, have experienced difficulties in life where we've had to not be ashamed of the gospel. But brothers, I can assure you that it's nothing like that, right? Nothing like that. Well, the parents are the opposite here. In verse 23, they repeat themselves. He is of age. Ask him. They do everything that they can to have nothing to do with this issue here. And notice there's a second questioning of the blind man then in verses 24 to 34. Again, I love this by John in verse 24. They called the man, here's a silent witness again, John. They called the man who had been blind. Hello, he really was blind before John is saying, right? He was healed. And then the religious leaders say to this poor guy at the end of verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, glorify God by telling the truth. They're basically calling him a liar. The religious leaders are saying to this healed blind man, say the truth, glorify God by saying the truth. He answers in verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You see how progressively he's growing in boldness? Progressively he's, he's becoming more and more fearless as he speaks up uh, to these guys. He stands up for the truth. I mean, think about this. He could be ostracized. He has a lot to lose this man. He could be kicked out of the synagogue. There's a high cost for this man from a human perspective, but he cannot deny what's happened to him, that Jesus has healed him. Amazing. But they keep pressing. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? My goodness. Did he not answer that already? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Did you catch what they are acknowledging already, by the way? They're actually acknowledging that the man truly is healed. How did he open your eyes? Having heard their acknowledgement, he answers now with a greater sense of confidence. Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? Whoa. I mean, keep in mind that this, is, this, is, this was once the lowly, destitute, ignored, outcast, and reject, and they are the aristocracy of Israel. I mean, they can put him to death, right? By concocting some plan to take him out. But even though they're supposedly the educated, they are the, really the fools in this narrative, aren't they? They are the fools. And such is the reality of unbelief, brothers. It's foolish. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool has said in his heart, no matter how educated, no matter how sophisticated, if you do not acknowledge the God of the Bible and the Christ that he has sent, you're a, you're a fool. No matter how sophisticated or educated you might be or appear to be. To turn your back on the truth, to suppress the truth, as Romans chapter 1 says, to exchange the, the God of the Bible for another image or a God of your own creation is to be a fool. Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. How? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and so forth, Right? They committed idolatry. They're fools. This is what you are if you turn your back on the truth. Well, they're not going to let up in verses 28 and 29. They become even more antagonistic towards this man. Look at verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. That's a slap in the face to any Jew, by the way. Any devoted Jew had a high regard for Moses and the law of Moses. What they're basically telling him is that he's no devoted Jew. If he's listening to Jesus, the man responds in verse 30. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, here's this man who from everything that we can see in the text is not educated, right? He has been blind from birth. They have read ad nauseum theology after theology upon theology upon theology. And yet he is the one that is articulating theological truth. Amazing. He's appealing also to the straight-up facts, isn't he? You guys are, are so irrational. You're denying the straight-up facts. Jesus has to be more than just a man if he's able to do what he just did for me. And they can't see it. Well, now they, it becomes very personal. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Boy, that's what he gets for answering their questions straightforwardly and honestly, right? For just answering their questions, speaking the truth, they cast him out of the synagogue. Boys, unbelief is ugly, isn't it? Unbelief is, is hideous. And here we learn some things about the ugliness of unbelief, don't we? That unbelief is, is foolish. No matter how, what kind of education you have. If you do not bow the key, the, 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 your knee to the, to the king of the universe, you are what the Bible says, a fool. 
Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is unreasonable. Unbelief leads to great hostility against the truth. Unbelief is stubborn and obstinate. We see all of those characteristics here of, uh, here of unbelief. Because no matter how many witnesses, no matter how many details, no matter how many facts are presented to these religious leaders, they simply will not believe. Hmm. How many times have we not seen that in our lives, brothers? With individuals that we've shared the gospel with. I've sat in front of people with PhDs and tried to reason with them about the truth and just try to show them what the scriptures say. And they basically look at me like I'm some, some uneducated guy, right? As if I'm some fool because I'm calling them to believe in the God of Scripture. We've all had those moments. Unbelief is hideous and ugly. And it should lead us all the more because of that to our knees to be praying and seeking the face of God that he would change the hearts of people that we've shared the gospel with. That he would open the eyes of the spiritually blind in our lives. Well, third, third, write this down. As an evangelist also, as we look at this account, anticipate the polarizing effects of the gospel. I want to call you to anticipate the polarizing effects of the gospel. We see that in verses 35 through 41. And what I simply want us to, to see here is that sometimes we can get down on ourselves when we share Christ and, and people maybe reject Jesus. And I think what we need to remember is, first of all, they're not ultimately rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ, right? It feels personal because we love our King Jesus. But secondly, recognize this, that if you are being faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ, both belief and unbelief are something that we should anticipate. If you are being faithful to proclaiming the gospel, you should anticipate that there are going to be many people. Narrow is the way, right? That leads to life. Few find Christ few. So we should anticipate the polarizing effects of the gospel, and that would include the fact that many will not believe. First of all here, there's the great contrast, right, of someone who goes from unbeliever to believer in verses 35 through 38. All the while the so-called scene, the Pharisees are shown to be the spiritually blind, even though they hear the truth. Look first at the blind who sees, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The word gets out. Our Lord hears this. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of God? I love this. I love this. Jesus hears about this man who was willing to, to pay the price for speaking the truth concerning him as the Messiah, formerly an outcast, rejected by the people, by those who knew of him, rejected Listen, by his own family who won't support him and stand up for the truth concerning what's taken place in his life, he's rejected by the so-called religious elite who from a human perspective should have known better and cast him out of the synagogue. He's all but dismissed. Jesus is aware of all of this. Jesus is aware of all of this. Jesus is aware of that young woman many years ago whose testimony I heard. Grow, having grown up in a Catholic uh, home. And as soon as she came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, her parents told her, you either deny the Christian faith or you can no longer come back over here. Jesus was aware of that young lady who's now happily married with children. Yes, 
pain and hardship as a part of her life, but now she rejoices in the fact that she's following after Christ. And all of, both of her parents and many of her siblings have come to know Jesus Christ since those last 25 years. Jesus is aware, right? Jesus is aware of this man, formerly an outcast and a reject concerning what he has done and making a stance for the sake of Christ. And so he calls him for a commitment. Look at verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That title, Son of Man, appears in Daniel 7, 13. And that title refers to the future Messiah. And it appears many times in the Gospel of John. And so in asking him this, Jesus is not calling here for a, a simple acknowledgement of facts. Okay? Intellectual assent. Some easy believism. Because he's got a, 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 a price to pay, right? For making a stand for Christ. He's calling for a real commitment from this man that acknowledges that this man believes in whom Jesus is. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man gets it. Verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's addressing himself to Jesus with a sense of respect. But he sincerely asks, Who is this Son of Man that I may believe in him? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's John's commentary, by the way. At the end of verse 38, he worshiped him. He believes in Christ. Here we see a man, wow, who not only goes from physical blindness to receiving physical sight from Christ, but he goes from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, to salvation, to trusting in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And this is what happens in salvation, isn't it? This is what happens in salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were before Christ at one time spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you remember the words of, of Ephesians 2, 4? But God... But God, because of his great mercy, because of his grace, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? Made us alive there is, is synonymous with, with the fact that God gives us spiritual eyes to see. We who were blinded by the God, little g of this world at one point in time. That's what happens to this, to this man here. He comes to know Christ. He is delivered and rescued from his sin. He is granted forgiveness. Now watch this. Here's the contrast, which are the spiritually blind. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Here's the polarizing effect of Christ's arrival, right? That there are going to be those, like this blind man, who move from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, and there are going to be those who think that they see but in reality are spiritually blind like the religious leaders, no matter what they knew. No matter how much knowledge they had, it hadn't impacted their hearts, and they rejected Christ. Well, they get it. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's Jesus saying? What's Jesus saying? That if they humbly acknowledge their spiritual blindness, they would receive spiritual sight. They would receive forgiveness for their sins. But in their spiritual arrogance, they don't recognize their need. 
They don't recognize their, their plight. Thus, their guilt remains. There is no forgiveness for them. Elsewhere in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus previously said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are what? Sick, right? In other words, for you to come to Christ, you must acknowledge your need for him. You don't go to a doctor unless you know that you are sick, right? Jesus was saying, unless you understand your sickness and that there's nothing that you can do to heal yourself, you will not come to the physician with a capital P who is able to not only rescue you from physical sickness, but all the more from your rebellion against God. Who is able to reconcile you to God. What a contrast. What a contrast. There is a polarizing effect that the gospel has upon people, brothers, and we've all seen it as we've shared the gospel. We've all seen it. So sobering, isn't it? Sobering that when we share the gospel, read this passage sometime, maybe in your small group. We don't have time to read it right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Read that, maybe to start your discussion. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17, which speaks there about the fact that as we witness, there's this polarizing effect, this sobering reality takes place that some will embrace Christ and pass from life to life. Some will reject Jesus and pass from death to eternal death and damnation. That's sobering, isn't it? The gospel has a polarizing effect. Hell and heaven hang in the balance as we witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why all the more we need to be prepared and equipped as we, so that we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus as our pastor has been encouraging us, brothers. Hmm. May God help us to be faithful witnesses of Christ, remembering that the gospel polarizes, right? Some believe, like in this passage, the rejected man who was formerly blind, some will reject Christ, even though educated like the religious leaders. How many times have we not seen that in our lives? Amen? All right, let me pray for us so you can break into your small groups. Father, Lord, what a, an amazing miracle by the majestic Christ yet once again that we would behold him in his glory on the pages of the Gospel of John. Father, what a sobering reality that this man passed from spiritual death to spiritual life more than receiving just physical sight. And that, Lord, those who thought that they knew better. The religious leaders passed from death to eternal damnation, at least from what we see here. Perhaps some of them came to believe in Christ later on. Lord, help us to be both encouraged by this man who was received by you through faith in Jesus as the Messiah to eternal life, and help us to also be, Lord, sobered up by the great reality that there are many people even in our lives who are going to be like the religious leaders, who, Lord, know the right things, who no matter how much evidence is given to them, will never come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to continue, Lord, all the more, as far as it depends on us, to be equipped and prepared to share the message of Christ that many...